Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gift of Freedom. My guest tonight is Dr. Carsonia Wise Whitehead. She's going to talk to us tonight about her new book, A Slave's Diary, Notes from a Colored Girl, The Civil War Diaries of Emily Frances Davis. Good evening, Dr. Whitehead. Good evening. How are you? Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. Oh, thanks so much for taking time to be with us to talk (laughs) to us about this extraordinary uh, diary written by a uh, freeborn mulatto girl, Philadelphia, during the Civil War. Yes. Uh, Where do we start? I'm telling you, probably uh, <laughs> at the beginning. Um, and we, we can go back as far as you like. I, I definitely have had well, let's start, quite a let's journey. Start. She was... Uh, okay. Uh, I got some interference coming in here. Um, can you hear me okay? okay? Yeah, I can hear you okay. Okay, good. And... Uh, Okay, yeah, we you were with us earlier when we uh, talked about Harriet Tubman, right? Yes, we had a great conversation yes. at that time. Exactly, and uh, so what do we pick up here with uh, with uh, Miss Davis? Well, I um, first received copies of the Emily Davis Diaries in 2005. I was working as a middle school social studies teacher. And a friend of mine thought that the diaries were interesting and made copies of them and mailed them to me. When I started reading them, I, I thought this was a, a, an interesting story. It was diaries from 1863, 64, and 65, very poor quality copies, black and white copies. They were hard to read. And it took me quite a few months to make my way through them. I think after about four months, I finally got to the August entries. And that's when the story to me began to turn. Because August is the first time that Emily Davis racially self-identifies. She calls herself a colored person. My life changed at that moment. And I realized that I had discovered something, potentially changed the way we think about 19th century free black women. Because we had such a, a small set of literate three black people at that moment, and there's an even smaller subset of women uh, out of the free black community that could read and write. And then when you count to that, that Emily kept pocket diaries for three years, and now she's only one of a handful of primary sources that have been found by black women from her time. Okay. So she was living in the spaces of uh, white elites, black entrepreneurs, urban dwellers, Yes, she was. Uh, she lived in Philadelphia in the Seventh Ward, and that was a very uh, middle-class uh, neighborhood for free blacks and for some whites. Um, you had a mixture of mulattoes, whites. There were very, very few people that we would classify as black. I mean, at that time, you had two classes of people of color. You had mulattoes and you had blacks. Mulattoes are typically, of course, they had fair skin. Uh, they had uh, thinner or curlier hair. Um, they had access to schooling, to traveling. Um, they had higher income levels. So there was a distinction between those that were mulatto and those that were black. Blacks usually had darker skin. Uh, they had more typical African features, wider noses, thicker hair. Typically, they were either, uh, they had been born enslaved and either been newly freed or had run away to freedom on their own. Um, And they did not have access to the type of goods and services 
that the mulatto community have. They do not have access to certain churches uh, or certain clubs. So there definitely was a caste system, what I like to call it, at that time. And so Emily, as a mulatto woman, uh, was able to take advantage of that. She was both a domestic and a seamstress. W.B. Du Bois, in his book, um, he talks about the Negro in Philadelphia, talks about the different grades of skills that black people had at that time. And I want to note that when I use the term black, I'm being all-inclusive at this moment. I'm talking about both the mulatto and the black community. I don't make that distinction with mulatto and black unless I'm specifically talking about income levels or or education or, or, or access to travel. The black community had a number of grades in terms of skills, and Emily possessed two of those grades. One, she was a domestic, uh, which was a grade three skill. Um, You typically had black women who had less education working as domestics, taking care of children, cleaning up houses. It definitely was a grade three skill. But she also had a grade one skill. She was a seamstress, so she was able to control her own income. Um, in 1870, uh, 1865, Emily actually bought a sewing machine. And at that time, sewing machines had just come onto the market. In fact, the New York Times said every household should have a sewing machine because women will have an opportunity to take care of the rest of their home and not spend the day sewing. Emily would uh, make dresses, and she made them from scratch first by hand for two years and then using her sewing machine. You know, you made a distinction there, um, is it politically correct for us to continue to use uh, the slave master's train of thought? In terms of mulatto? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was an excellent, point that, it's an excellent point that you brought up. As, as we continue to look back and, and we, we do the work of rescuing and reclaiming our history, we have to make decisions along the way. How much are we going to pull these terms forward? Do we say colors or do we now say African-American? Do we say black power or African-American power? Do we say mulatto or do we say someone who's lighter skinned? Uh, do we say slave or do we say enslaved? I, I think these are terms that we're wrestling with and we're trying to figure out how to pull them forward. In the beginning of my book, in the methodology section, I talk about my decision to use the word black. I mean, to not use mulatto and black or colored, which is also a term that was used at that time. I, I wanted to have some agency in the work, and I wanted to pull these terms forward. I do define what it means to be mulatto, and I do use that term when I'm specifically making a distinction between the two communities. But other than that, I use the more inclusive term of black. Because I do think that we all have to make decisions about how much of the history we want to tweak and change and pull forward to what's acceptable. It's no longer acceptable to use the N-word. But when I work on enslaved narratives, that, that term is used all the time. Do I then use it when I'm writing about it? No, I prefer not to. I, I like to say why I don't use it, uh, and then I like to pull the term forward and go with what I feel is the best term for us to use as we're moving into this new millennium. Yeah, it's interesting. Just um, the other day we had an interview with uh, – an individual in reference to uh, Bell, the new movie yeah. that's uh, premiered mm-hmm. there, and that Bell became a an abolitionist hero or heroine, yes. probably because of her mulatto uh, bloodline, um, which gave them access, and many of them used their white privilege for the abolitionist cause. Yes. So in that context. So... What does uh, Emily tell us about some of her personal views, experience around politics and of the time? And well, what did she do the same? Um, did, was she like Bell? Was she involved in the abolitionist <laughs> movement at all? Uh, well, well, not to the same extent. I, I think that that with the Bell character, and I, I do think that's very interesting, is that you have a lot of of a, a fictionalized story placed upon a person's life. Um, you can do less of that with Emily because Emily's story has survived and it's in her own words. Exactly. In my book, I, I have all three years transcribed of Emily's diary. So I can't make anything up. I, I can't pretend that she was something that she wasn't because she laid out who she was in her diaries. I find that Emily is more real than Belle. Emily has more agency than Belle or other. Emily's story, in her own words, have survived. 
Emily's story in 1863 would not be interesting. Pocket diaries were very popular. Women were writing in pocket diaries all the time, writing about their children or what their husbands were doing or what their girlfriends were doing. It was a very ordinary task at that moment. What makes Emily extraordinary is that her work has survived. So Emily, in a sense, because of becomes a prism that really refracts the experiences of the free black community. There's a void there between women who were considered to be elite. And I, I think here of Charlotte Fortin uh, coming from one of the richest families in Philadelphia. I think of Alice Dunbar Nelson who came after uh, enslavement ended, but she did keep pocket diaries coming at the end of the, uh, the 1890s into the early 1900s and he was married to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. I think of Ida B. Wells. Um, who, though she grew up challenged, she was also the daughter of one of the plantation owners. I mean, I think mm-hmm. of these women and their work has survived and their voices have been heard. We also don't know much about enslaved women individually. We see them as a mass. When we talk about, you know, the enslaved woman, we talk about the Jezebel, we talk about the Mammy, but we group them together. I mean, they're nameless, okay. they're faceless. It's just kind of this monolithic experience of all women that were enslaved at that time. In the middle of those, what I call the African-American women's continuum of the 19th century, you have Emily Davis, what I call an everyday or an ordinary free black woman. And she talks about things that are similar to our own experiences. She gets up in the morning, she records the weather, and she has to record the weather because she doesn't have her own horse and carriage. So she's walking every day or she's catching the streetcars. So the weather is very important to her. She talks about her daily activities, whether she's going to church or she's shopping or she's making a dress or she has a date. And I think that is fascinating. It's fascinating because we have yet to really discover what the free black community was. Uh, Emily's work is what I call, and really the term was, was coined by Laura Thatcher Ulrich, but this idea of daily repetition. You lay out over and over and over again an ordinary life. And then I would argue that, that we all live life in this space called ordinary. I mean, we have extraordinary moments, but every day is not extraordinary. You get up, you go to work, you deal with your kids, you deal with the weather, and you come home and pay bills. I mean, you go to bed and start all over again the next day. Okay. How did Emily celebrate uh, emancipation? Does she describe that at all in her diary? She does. Emily's diary begins on January 1st, 1863. And she actually writes, I'm turning to it now um, so I can share her exact words because then we can begin to talk about why this day was so important, not just to Emily, but to black and white people all over the country. She says, today has been a memorable day. I thank God I have been here to see it. The day was religiously observed. All the churches were open. We had quite a jubilee in the evening. I went to Jones's to a party, had a very blessed time. Emily was a member of First African Presbyterian Church, and that was the first and only black Presbyterian church in the country and only the fifth black church in the city. The pastor was Jonathan Gibbs, and he was a well-known activist. He had worked and organized with Frederick Douglass, for example. Jonathan Gibbs actually made his way to Florida after the war. There's a high school named after him. Um, But he spoke that evening about this idea of what it means to make history, that we're in the middle of history happening. Even though Emily begins her diary on January 1st, I I suspect that she was probably in church that evening because everybody pretty much was in church that evening. We, the black community and the white community did not know whether or not Lincoln was going to go through with what he had stated 100 days earlier. They did not know until it came across the wire. I mean, in fact, in Boston, Massachusetts, Frederick Douglass was at the Tremont Church, and they, they were there singing and shouting and praying that that message would come across the wire that Lincoln has done what he said he was going to do. He was going to set all enslaved people that lived in states that were in opposition to the Union free. So it was a grand jubilee. And Emily, as a member of the free black community who had some awareness of what was happening in the South and across the country, mm-hmm. celebrated as well. Okay. Does she, you mentioned churches. Does she mention Mother Bethel? She uh, does. She goes to Mother Bethel to see Frederick Douglass on a regular basis. Frederick Douglass, her- did you know? Yes. Let our audience also know the historical importance of Bethel. Well, Mother Bethel was one of the oldest black churches, and it actually is even to this day. 
the oldest black church to continuously sit on land that it owns. Mother Bethel, unlike First African Presbyterian, has not moved. It still sits on the same land. It was in the 19th century. It was considered to be the mothership in terms of black activism and abolitionists coming through. Everyone from Frederick Douglass to Mary McLeod Bethune has come through Mother Bethel and has stood on that stage and has talked to people from the community and outside of the community. So Emily is a part of that history as well. Mother Bethel was not her church. Mother Bethel was a very exclusive and closed community. You could come in and you can attend services but not buy a seat in the pew. I mean, that, that mulatto community had a lot more money than Emily's mulatto community that attended First African Presbyterian. These things mattered at that time. They don't matter as much today. You can go to any church you want and join any church that you want. But at that time, your income level did determine your access to having membership at a particular church. So Mother Bethel was considered to be the elite of the elite black churches in okay. Philadelphia, but up and down the East Coast. Yeah. Are you aware that burial, uh, burial grounds, Mother Bethel's burial ground that is now uh, covered over by a playground? I did not know that. I did not know it was covered by a playground. Wow, that's interesting. Um, That's interesting because Emily's family owned Eden Cemetery. Uh, She married into the White family, and that was the first black cemetery that was not owned by a church, and it still exists. Eden was bought by Lebanon Cemetery, but that is still in existence. I did not know this cemetery was covered over by a playground. I just, I, I shudder to think about the history that's been lost. Yeah, we uh, had an interview, a show about the Eden Cemetery not too long ago, and the fact that the other cemetery um, made national news, actually. And uh, Leslie will probably share that article with you on your Facebook page. I would appreciate Um, if you did that. Okay, great. Tell me a little something about, and I didn't see the show, but something on Saturday Night Live show. Um, something about breeding, a joke about oh, breeding. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I did go and, and see that um, on Facebook. I don't watch Saturday Night Live on a regular basis. They brought onto the show uh, a black female comedian who was one of the writers for the show. There's only one black woman who's in the cast. And this is not that woman. She is one of the behind-the-scenes writers, and she came onto what they considered to be their news desk. And she was talking about Lupita being named as the most beautiful person or most beautiful, I think it's most beautiful person now, not most beautiful woman, in America. And she said, given the way I look, I would never be selected to have that honor. Um, but if you were looking at me thinking, who's going to protect you? on a playground at night, you know, in Harlem, then you probably would select me. And I'm paraphrasing what she said. She said, you know, I think okay. that we have, we have the wrong idea of what it means to be beautiful and how we make these lists. But if you look at me during the time of enslavement, I believe she called it slavery, but I say enslavement, I would be at the top of that list. I mean, I'm tall, I'm thick, I look like I can breathe children. I would make a great slave and I would be number one at the top of the list in terms of the most desirable person. And Lupita, at that time, she she would not be. So, and again, I'm paraphrasing. People can look it up and Google and see exactly what she said. I found it very disturbing. I don't think jokes about rape and incest and enslavement are funny. I don't think they are. And all of this encompassed her job. Some people have written all kinds of articles about, no, no, she was trying to turn this gaze back onto white America and make us think about what happened during this period. If that was her intent, she failed at that. And instead, she took very serious issues, and she made them into a joke. I would never say I would make a great slave and I'd make a great breeder because a breeder means, in a sense, you were being raped. And, and that, that's not funny. There's nothing funny about that. So it sounds like they hired a six-foot woman who looks masculine, yeah, well, that's, uh, that's, looking you know. pretty much like a man in drag, only to have her debut on a, on a racist skit. Yeah, I, I guess I have some that. Yeah. Because, you know, people talked about, you know, how masculine she was. I guess as, as a feminist, I often push back at the terms of what it means to be masculine or what it means to be feminine. Like, you know, who makes those definitions and, and who tells us 
what it means to be too masculine or too feminist. Who, who says that? And that's something that society has said, what it means to be a woman, that you have to be, you know, dainty. You need to be protected. And, and Lupita is a woman. I mean, she, she's a feminine woman. And anyone who's left of that, uh, who may not be as dainty, who may not be as small, who may not have these you know, sharply defined eyebrows, um, for example, who may not be that stereotypical idea of what they consider to be beautiful now, you're left of that. And I think left of that is where a lot of women sit. So you're not beautiful. You never make the list. So, so where do you fall? I mean, I heard a lot of pain in her joke. Um, pain I heard from her, pain I heard from sisters throughout the years where they tell themselves because people have told them over and over again all their lives, you're not beautiful, you're not acceptable, you're not what I look for. When I think about the standards of beauty in this country, there's still the standards of, you know, the blonde hair, the blue eyes, mm-hmm. white, six feet tall, very thin, with very large, uh, very large bosom. I mean, you still have that. So the pizza yeah. aside, there's still the well, standard of beauty. She has bucked against that, but I wonder how long will it last. Well, I think, um, you know, the fact that she got hired was done after black folks had complained, um, you know, that they were forcing black men to dress up as women oh, yeah. to depict black women. Yeah. And so that's how she got her job. And um, Which is interesting. I, I mean, I put I, her out on front. I would love to know the backstory. Why didn't the woman who's in the cast, the black woman who's actually in the cast, do that role. Did they offer her that, and she said, no, I'm not going to do it? Um, she has not spoken, but I thought it was very interesting that you have one of the writers come on for her debut on the show, and this exactly. is how she does it. I think the black woman who's currently in the cast, and her name escapes me, I think she's actually very funny in the few clips that I have seen. Yeah, I think that was probably an insult to the protest. It was done to insult the protesters. I know. So Saturday Night Live gets away with a lot. Um, oh. Saturday Night Live definitely doesn't do as well with racial comedy as, say, In Living Color used to do, right? <laughs> I mean, In Living Color used to really turn that gaze back on white and black America and make us think about, you know, stereotypes and images in a way that Saturday Night Live is unable to do. They're just not as sophisticated with that type of humor. Yeah, well, let's get back to uh, Emily. Um, yes, please. Yes, and, you know, what other descriptions, poignant descriptions that she gave of her life and times there in Philadelphia during this particular time, during the uh, uh, the Civil War, uh, Civil War coming to an end, et cetera? What else does she reveal to us? Oh, by the way, um, give us the spelling on Emily's uh, name in case I... I'm okay. sure our listeners will be out looking for the book. Okay, no problem. I, I will talk about that first. Um, Emily's name, and I talk about this in my methodology, about the three ways that, that her name could be spelled. Um, her name, E-M-I-L-I-E, is the French spelling of Emily. And that's the spelling that she uses in her 1863 and 1864 diaries. Um, E-M-L-I-E. E-M-I-L-Y is the English spelling of Emily. Uh, her name is spelled that way on uh, the U.S. Census in 1860. It's spelled that way on her marriage certificate. I wonder if the person reporting that might have misspelled it. Um, and then there's E-M-L-I-E, and that's the way she spells her name in her 1865 diary. I made the choice to go with E-M. I L I E because that's the way she seems to have preferred it. And when she had her daughter, that's the spelling that she gave to her daughter. So that's why I spell it that way. But I do talk mm-hmm. about that. Um, I, I see Emily's diaries uh, as a space to begin to have a conversation about ordinary women. Emily covers a number of topics. I mean, she's writing on the day that the 13th Amendment is released. Uh, She writes on the day that that Lincoln is assassinated, and and she talks about what that experience is uh, as a black woman watching Lincoln's coffin and hearse come into the city of Philadelphia. She writes about standing in in line for over four hours waiting to get a chance to to see him lying in state. Uh, Emily talks about 
the struggles of, of colored soldiers. And I use the word colored um, very, very, uh, I use that word as a definite choice because that's what they were called, the U.S. colored soldiers. So she talks about their experiences with going off to war, not being accepted in Philadelphia and being sent back. Both Emily's brother and her uncle are drafted in the war. Her uncle, Elijah Jay, who signed the call to arms along with Frederick Douglass, wanted to go to war. She was concerned that he was too old, but he was able to go to war. Her brother, on the other hand, did not want to go to war. Her brother actually tried to run away to Canada to avoid being drafted. His wife was very ill. He had a newborn child. Uh, and he wanted to stay home. Ultimately, he was captured and sent off to war. He died in 1865 um, from an injury he seems to have sustained during the war. She talks about what happens once um, the enslaved population is free, how prior to that, her ladies' union group, they would work to raise money to send down to help the soldiers, and then after the war over, they changed their focus and began to raise money to send down to help fund the schools. Their target state was South Carolina. And what I find to be very interesting as another connection between Emily and I is that my family is from South Carolina. And I like to think that as Emily worked in Philadelphia to send money down to South Carolina, she may have been doing it to help members of my family. Um, because I have, of course, enslavement in my past um, in Columbia, South Carolina. Emily also looks at literacy rates. I mean, what does it mean to be a free black woman and to still be in school? She was at the Institute for Colored Youth, which is now Cheney University, taking Latin and German and spelling and math. Um, she was looking to educate herself, and she stayed involved. Um, I, I'm, I see Emily is telling us a lot about what it means to be a seamstress, to control your own income. I add her to this definition of what it means to be a businesswoman at that time because prior definition of Wendy Gambler set out did not include free black women. Well, Emily Davis gets added to that new definition and pushes the boundaries of what it means to control your income as a form of agency and empowerment. Hmm. Yeah, I want to move back um, to talk about the uh, founding of uh, Mother Bethel. Okay. Um, when we talk about... Uh, these various colors, mulatto, black, and then the church was established as African uh, Methodist Church. Do you know if there was any um, friction? Did Alan have any uh, particular problems because of his color? Well, I know that there, in my studies, because I, I looked a lot at the mulatto and the black community to try to find out what I found that in Philadelphia as a whole, there was a lot of friction. I don't believe that that friction spilled over into Mother Bethel because Mother Bethel had very few, and this is when I use this term very deliberately, very few black members. Mother Bethel had a majority of mulatto members where they had very similar income levels, um, where they had members uh, like William Still was a member there. He lived within walking distance of Mother Bethel. I mean, when Frederick Douglass came to town, Mother Bethel is a church where he chose to speak. When you think about the uh, the poster of the Distinguished Colored Men, those were members of Mother Bethel. I mean, it, it, it was a place where you have this mulatto community. Octavius Cato, um, who comes from, whose mother was, coming from South Carolina, a mulatto family. He was a member of Mother Bethel, although his father worked and attended um, First African Presbyterian. But it, as one of the first black churches in America, it had been around in the first war since 1794. I mean, Mother um, Bethel was... Excuse me, Doctor. Um, yeah. How is it you think that Alan, dark-skinned, former slave, mm -hmm became the leader of this church that was, you know, socially stratified around the mulattoes and the money that they had. And also, um, was William Still was also dark-skinned and a former slave, was he not? Yeah, but William Still was also from a very different community. I mean, he was considered to be the father of the abolitionists. I mean, at this time, William Still was a very well-known activist in the community. I mean, he was part of the Underground Railroad. He had a voice that was larger than life. He was, in a sense, the Frederick Douglass of Philadelphia. So William Still 
set above what we talked about, darker-skinned people. I think what's interesting uh, in Philadelphia, and this happened you know, with, with James Fortress. We can go back to the late 1700s when Philadelphia began to be very racially stratified along income levels. I mean, it was, it was around money. When you think about First African Presbyterian, you think about the fact that church, in terms of people's donations and tithes, it was one of the richest black churches in Philadelphia based upon the members' tithing. Well, in order to be able to tithe, it meant you had disposable income. To have a disposable income in Philadelphia, you then had to have a certain grade of a skill. The more education you had, the, more, the higher your skill level. Whether or not if you were a barber, that was a high skill level. You were interacting mm-hmm. with different people. If you were a seamstress, that was a skill. These are skill levels that are taught what they call on the hip is what they say. You, don't, you didn't go to school to be a barber. Instead, someone had that skill in your family. You didn't go to school to be a seamstress. Emily's mother was a seamstress and taught her this skill. And based upon the way the communities were broken up, it's not as if black people were within walking distance of Mother Bethel. The Seventh Ward was a very well-off war. To live in that area, to have, uh, to own a house in that community meant that you had a certain income level. I mean, you have to think, too, this is now, we're into 1863. It's a huge difference. Mother Bethel had been around since 1794. So this is many okay. years later when you talk about the racial stratification that was taking place in Philadelphia during the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s when it really became separated. I mean, you're talking about the time of the fugitive slave law. So who has the right to move in and out of the city? I mean, Frederick Douglass was accepted, right, even though he was formerly enslaved. But Frederick Douglass is also put in a different category, not mm-hmm. just because he educated himself. And we know the stories of him trading bread to find out what letters meant. But, but Frederick Douglass was very well spoken. He was a spokesperson. And then he began to, of course, have his own agency, but when you think about the rest of the community, you step down from a Frederick Douglass, you step down from a William Still, you step down from a Charlotte Fortune, what was happening within the rest of the community? That's what Emily's talking about. What else were they doing? Yeah, how do we, separation. what do we know about their ability, uh, you know, to be a barber, a seamstress, required the latest technology of the day, machinery. Right. Yeah. And how did they, and it required the money to obtain that, also the knowledge to operate. So do we have any insight into how they uh, connected with the, the, the money and the knowledge? Well, we do know with, in terms of being a seamstress, um, and again, I'm looking at the work of W.D. Du Bois or the work of Theodore Hirschberg, where they talk about these grade one or grade two skills. Uh, anything that requires that kind of work, that's why I meant that term that you were taught on the hip. It wasn't if you were sent away to learn a trade at seven. These are skills that were taught to you by your parents. So these are trades and skills and monies that remained inside the home, in a sense, inside the community, right? Because if you're growing up in a middle-class community, and middle-class at that time meant that you had a higher income level. Middle class, everybody considers themselves to be middle-class, right, whether you're making $100,000 or $40,000. But at that time, there were some true distinctions between what it meant to be middle-class and upper-class and lower-class. So with this idea of being a seamstress, you were learning this trade. You, and there were different types of seamstress. I mean, you, know, you have what they call the garbled masses, folks who could just kind of put a seam up stitch up the side of the dress. Then you had a seamstress like Emily who could copy. And copy meant that you would get Ladies' Gaudy magazine, you would see what the latest fashion styles were, and you could make that exact dress even if you did not have a pattern for it. You could copy the dress. And there was a place for that within the community, and you would take that money and do what with it? You put it into the bank or you would put it into purchasing a piece of property. Emily lived in a boarding house, but I am assuming that she probably had two rooms which means she had enough to support her own room, but also enough to support where her business was because you needed a lot of space to be a seamstress. I outlined in one of the chapters, I think, the world of women, what type of materials she would have had and how much money she had to spend onto herself, into her own business, to make sure that she was able, able to remain competitive. So I, I think it's interesting. Um, yeah, Emily, very. Even, 
I mean, one of the things I, I think that, that I don't talk about very much, um, I, I explored a bit in the book, was about the, the use of language. I mean, Emily frequently used French and German words in her diary. In the free black community, the mulatto community in particular, they would meet each other on the street speaking French or German, Latin or Spanish. I mean, that, that speaks to the type of lifestyle. You're speaking French on the corner in Philadelphia. It means you're going to school and you become fluent in French. And you think about the Institute of Color used to add to that. They had kind of a pyramid structure, which reminds me a lot of what happens, for example, in Nairobi or in South Africa, where to go to the next level in school, you have to test. Everybody doesn't automatically move on, like in America, where mm-hmm. all sixth graders go into seventh grade unless you're left behind. Well, at the Institute for Colored Youth, you would have to take a test to move from one grade to the next. Only the highest test scores moved on. And the fact that in those three years, Emily continued to move meant that not only was she continuing to get her education, not only was she considered to be very literate, she was also able to pass the test with the highest grades to continue on with her education. I mean, they, they call those that graduated from the Institute, you know, the elite within the elite, because you're already elite if you can attend, because you're paying $5 per semester to attend, and the, the ratio was, you know, roughly 17 to $18 to one. So you're paying the money to attend every semester, but you're also testing to continue with your education. I say, what do we know about Emily's parents? He was born free and speaking uh, various languages. Uh, what can you tell us about her parents? Her mother was mulatto, and she was from Pennsylvania. The information I found about her father, Charles Davis, is that he was actually had been born enslaved in Maryland and had made his way to Pennsylvania. What I don't know, and this is where the story gets very interesting, and perhaps this is in my next book, how did a man who was born enslaved, who made his way to Pennsylvania, who was listed in the U.S. Census as being colored, how did he, I'm sorry, as being black, how did he marry a mulatto woman who had been born free? I'd like to know how they met and how they were connected because typically oh, yeah. mulattoes married mulattoes. Very few mulattoes married a black person um, because your income was also tied to your skin color. You went up or down based upon how you were classified in the census. With Emily's census records from 1860, for her, her father and her mother to be classified differently meant that everybody was home. Uh, at that time, the census taker would show up, and if one person answered the door and nobody else was home, then the whole family would be classified, whatever that person chose to classify that black person. Sometimes they would say you were black or mulatto based upon how you look. But Emily's father and brother are classified as black. Emily, her sister, and her mother are classified as mulatto. So they must have all been home. How did they meet? I'm making uh, the assumption that her father could read, and the reason why I make that conclusion is that she often writes about writing him letters and receiving letters from him. There's also the possibility that perhaps he had someone else to write the letters and that person would read Emily's letters to him. But here's a man who educated his children. Her brother Alfred could read and write. Her sister Elizabeth could read and write. Her brother Tommy, who was served in the U.S. Navy, could read and write. And I know they can read and write because Emily talks of sending letters to them and of receiving letters from them. So he educated all of his children. There are a lot of unanswered questions with Emily. Uh, She does not mention her mother. Even though her mother is in the 1860 census, for three years she never mentions, I saw mom today, or mom contacted me, or mom came by. So I, I wonder what happened. And she talks about her father all the time, you know, that my father's sick, or father is this, he stopped mm-hmm. by, he's moving, he moves to Harrisburg because he gets very ill. She sends money to Harrisburg to take care of him, which again speaks to her income level if she can send money to take care of others. She never mentions her mother. And what's even more interesting is Emily marks the anniversaries of deaths of her friends. In her diary, she'll say, oh, it's been a year since Lizzie's been dead, or oh, it's been five years since this person's been dead. She doesn't say that about her mother. Yeah. You know, speaking of this, um, this color thing, uh, historically black colleges and universities, when they were created during Reconstruction, 
Were most of the students required to be mulatto? Was there a color distinction on those who were admitted? <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the, the stories about Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and the, the paper bag test, right? <laughs> Where, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. they still do that in New Orleans, I hear. <laughs> you know, you know if you want to be part of the sorority, you got to be lighter. That was, what, 1908, I believe. I'm a Delta, so I, I think Alpha Kappa Alpha was signed in 1908. So I think they, they definitely had the paper bag test. Um, but but with, with the historically black colleges and universities, uh, I can speak very comfortably about Lincoln University, Pennsylvania, which is where I went to school. Uh, and Lincoln was founded, if I'm not mistaken, in 1854. And Lincoln was founded for the purpose of taking um, formerly enslaved men and training them to be missionaries to Liberia. Um, and so I, it did not deal with whether or not you were mulatto. You were male and you were trained to be missionaries. It evolved, in court, of course, where the males were not uh, being sent off to Liberia, but I don't think that had anything to do with, with the color of your skin. I don't know, and I cannot speak about, say, Howard University, for example. You know, were they making sure that attendance was only limited to whether or not you were, I know they had a paper bag test because AKA was there on the campus of Howard. But I know Lincoln, well, and I speak about, oh, go ahead, please. I understand that, uh, you know, the college has required you to send a picture yeah. And that picture was put up against the brown paper bag. <laughs> uh, you know, and I can recall, I started college in 1962 playing football, and we made a trip down to Tennessee State. And the big thing about Tennessee State is this quotation, the sun never sets on Tennessee State, <laughs> 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 wow. which was an allusion to color. Particularly oh. the girls, you know. The sun they never set. All, all light skin, state. like the sun. <laughs> yep. It never set. The sun never set. It there. never set. That's very interesting. Um, I, I, like I said, I don't know about Lincoln. I don't know what happened when they started allowing women to attend the school. It may have been that, that same kind of light skin, dark skin uh, tension that, that we had, and that was pervasive in other uh, black communities. I know that it existed in Philadelphia. I know there was a lot of tension. Lincoln at that time, you know, Ash, it was Ashton Institute at that time. Um, oh, let me, let me interject. The Lincoln that I was making reference to was the Lincoln University in Missouri, not Pennsylvania. Okay, Pennsylvania is fine. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's my alma mater, the one in Pennsylvania, which was Ashton Institute and which actually comes up in my book because many of the men who were studying to be ministers and missionaries would come to Philadelphia and they would either work or intern in a sense at Mother Bethel or at First African Presbyterian. So there was a connection between Lincoln uh, and First African and also Princeton and First African. Yeah, does uh, anyone mention anything about President Lincoln at the time who was uh, scheming to send blacks to uh, Liberia instead of going to war? No, she does not. She does not mention anything. She talks about, of course, the National Day of Fasting that he set up. She talks a lot about when he died. She does not mention it, but I open that discussion up in the book. When I talk about the countdown to the Emancipation Proclamation, I talk about what people were afraid. And one of the reasons was because he was trying to send blacks out of the country. He had made this argument that, if I'm not mistaken, I'm paraphrasing, that you and we, we as in the black community, are of different races. Um, And that in his conclusion, it was almost as if he was saying, we'd be better off on two different continents, two different countries, pay the members Dollars, I think it was $5,000 for land in the Cherokee Nation to send, um, send blacks at that time. But he wanted black people out of the country. And it's interesting because it was in Philadelphia, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it was at Mother Bethel where they had the meeting to consider his offer. Should oh, yeah. we leave this country? And the black folks voted overwhelmingly no. As Frederick Douglass said, our blood is mixed with the soil of this nation. Exactly. There's nowhere for us to go. This is our country. And this discussion that Lincoln had, you know, in 1860, 1863, because that's when he was really kind of having these discussions going on, 1862, are not new. If you look back at newspapers that were published in the early 1800s, in the late 1700s, they were talking about the same thing. Should we leave this country? Think about the history of Liberia. 
right? With, with yeah. newly freed blacks going over to Liberia and looking to set up the same system that they had just been freed from, where they were imposing their will over the native Liberians. I mean, that tension yeah. was over the indigenous people, yeah, which still lasts I mean, to this day. There's a lot of some animosity to this day. There's a lot of day. animosity. Yeah. There's a lot of animosity, um, which which I think is interesting. I mean, all of this is connected. I mean, you think of, wasn't that James Fortune? I mean, that that was something that he was putting money towards, helping to build ships mm-hmm. to get black people out of the country. Um, and, and, you know, they, they talk about that in the late 1700s, but I think it's very interesting that, you know, when President Barack Obama was running, wasn't that one of the big cries we heard from the white community, some parts of the white community, go back to Africa. I mean, it's still this idea that our blood does not run and mix with the soil of this nation. I mean, we go back to Africa and do what? That is not our country. We are Americans. We can say African, hyphen Americans, or African without the hyphen American, but, but we are part of this country. Why yes, did we, leave? Uh, we didn't leave in 1860. We didn't leave in 1790. We didn't leave in 1620, and we're not going to leave now. You know, uh, speaking of leaving, let me uh, read to you a quote, and I quote, My father was a slave, and my people died to build this country, and I'm going to stay right here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people would drive me from it, end of quote, Paul Robinson. Yep, and I absolutely, and I add to that Paul Robinson quote, uh, a quote that I learned and I have in the book, when they asked the U.S. colored soldiers, are you ready to fight? And they said, the only cowardness in our blood is the white part of our blood. The Whoa. white part of the blood is ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> so, so I add to Paul Robeson's quote, go where? This is our country just as well as it is anybody else who was born. It does not matter that we were not brought here voluntarily. And I, I argue with people, say, you know what, there was a large portion of the African community captured Africans who were not brought here voluntarily. But the first Africans who arrived here in 1619 came as indentured servants. They came voluntarily, and seven years later they were free. I said our history actually runs back to freedom and not back to enslavement. But let's be clear on that. We did not start in this country as enslaved people. We started as people with choices just like everybody else. Enslavement was, you know, pushed upon us, and it took years to break those shackles, but they have been broken. And we have stayed strong. We survived. I mean, we are the children of people who chose to survive. Our ancestors did not jump overboard. They stayed solid, and we have only gotten stronger. I mean, this is the largest community of black people in the world that are all combined. I mean, you think about some of the ethnic violence you have in different countries in Africa. I mean, we have a lot of black people in this country, and we're not fighting over language problems. The other things we fight over. But we are united as one community. Now, we have different income levels, different education levels, different communities, but we are one community. And, Doctor, I think you've hit one out of the park with this new book. Where can it be obtained? Where can our listeners get this book? Oh, excellent. You can get it on Amazon.com. It is selling very well. You can get it on BarnesandNoble.com. You can go to the University of South Carolina Press's website and get it. I would tell people to get it as quickly as possible. In two weeks, I'm releasing a companion reader to the Emily Davis book where that companion reader is for teachers. So I have lesson plans for teachers on how to teach the Emily Davis diaries in your classroom. And how would those teachers... How would those teachers contact you? What's your contact they should, information? They should, call, they should contact me one of two ways. They can go to K-E Whitehead at Loyola, L-O-Y-O-L-A dot E-D-U, K-E Whitehead at Loyola dot E-D-U, or they can simply uh, go to Amazon on the Amazon page and click right into my author's page. But they can easily find me at Carsonia Wise. Whitehead. I set it up on the internet where I'm easily found. If that's not a go right to my you're going to Dr. Carsonia KY's Whitehead. Tell folks they can contact me through Loyola University Department of Communication. You can't get the book, contact me and I'll make sure you get it. Okay. Do you have any parting words for us? We are coming up on the end here. Yeah. Um, um my, my parting words is that uh, you know, Emily's story 
is an American story. I don't want people to think that, oh, I'm not black, so this doesn't connect to me, or oh, I'm not a woman, so this doesn't oh, connect to me, or oh, I don't like to write, so it doesn't connect to me. I, exactly. I think Emily's story is an American story. I think that as we continue to investigate the Civil War, which is currently one of the most investigated and researched wars in the history of our nation, that we need to continue to add voices to this discussion. Emily's voice and her life and experiences have been found and resurrected, and we want to welcome her into the 21st century. Read Emily's story as you discover your own. Very, very, very strong point on the focus of this being an American story. Yes. Um, we're all in this melting pot together. Yes, we are. Uh, our history is their history. Their history is our history. Yes, sir. And uh, the sooner they learn that, uh, the sooner we all learn it, I think the better off we're going to be. I absolutely agree with you. And I thank you for Dr. inviting me to be on your show. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here again and so glad that you have taken the time to do this book, come on and talk to us about it. I'll be getting my copy here tomorrow or the next day. I encourage all our listeners to also pick up a copy of this book, of this American story. Yes, sir. Uh, Notes, Notes from a, from a Colored, Colored Girl, The Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Francis Davis. Yes, ma'am. Well, that's our show for this evening. Thank you again, Dr. Whitehead, for joining me here on the Gist of Freedom. Um, And your friends and others might be interested to know that this will be available at blackhistoryuniversity.com, free of charge, Um, and the show can be listened to again. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host coming to you out of Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, it's been my pleasure Uh, to be here with you this evening. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you so much, sir. Okay. Bye-bye.